Hey, good morning. It is good to have you here at the table this morning. Um, we have spent the past, I don't know, four or five weeks in a mini-series called um, uh, The School of Life. I want, I want to shift uh, and we're, I want to explore uh, over the next few weeks um, through the lens of Daniel, something I'm calling uh, a creative minority. Um, but I want to explore the idea of exile. Um, exile, I believe, is one of the three dominant themes that we find within Scripture. In fact, almost the entire Hebrew Scripture or the entire Old Testament is set against the idea of exile. It is either written by people in exile or it is texts that were compiled and edited during the midst to remember who they are and whose they are. And so we're going to do that through the book of Daniel, which Daniel is one of those books that's, not, uh, that's actually written from the midst of exile. Exile is a period where you feel powerless, where you feel like an outsider, where nothing is what it used to be. In exile, you are trying to live one way, and the dominant culture, the world in which you are living, is trying to live another way, and they think the way that you are living is foolish. That's what it means to be in exile. But before I talk about exile, I want to talk about Donald Trump and Barack Obama. How about that? On, on the night uh, that, that President Trump was elected, in the subsequent weeks, you who are from D.C. know this, that people all over D.C. were devastated. And there were people who were scared for the future. And many of you, at least those of you who tend to skew um, to the more progressive side, saw this as a tragedy. And you saw it as a time when, the, when everything that had happened that you saw as good over the past eight years could be dismantled. And if you were truthful, you felt powerless and you felt afraid. And in, in some ways you felt a bit like a, a stranger in a foreign land. You're like, how did we get here? How did this happen? I feel like I don't even recognize who we are anymore. I'm guessing some of you felt that. But what I find interesting is I remember exactly eight years prior, on the night that Barack Obama was elected, many of my conservative friends felt the exact same way and had the same feelings. Some of you may have had some of those same feelings during the eight years of the Obama administration. I mean, the narrative was different, right? There was different things you were concerned about. But the anxiety and the powerlessness and the feeling like a stranger in a foreign land, it was, it was similar. It's one of the reasons we're having such a hard time understanding one another. And honestly, we have a lot of the similar feelings, though, feelings of anxiety and like, I don't know who our country is or who we are becoming. But because in both cases, people were experiencing just a small taste of what it feels like to live in exile. You feel anxious. You feel powerless. You feel really concerned about the future. You feel as if you have no idea what is happening. And tied up within this question or the, the feelings of anxiety are these questions of who we are, in this case, in the case of the election, who we are as a nation. Who are we becoming? Is this our lot forever? There's a question of identity. But we're not only feeling the pain of exile as a nation, or some of you are not only feeling this as a nation, 
But Christians have felt something similar for a while. Now, and, and this is not, this doesn't like conservatives feel this way and liberals don't, right? Conservative Christians or liberal Christians or Christians all across. Like there's this spectrum of theology. And in our room, one of the things I love about the table is we are not afraid to have difficult conversations and we welcome everyone to the table, even people who really disagree with one another. And what we are trying to model is how to have really difficult conversations in love. Because that's the one thing I think we really lack as a country is we have not figured out how to disagree with one another and love. And so we're trying to model this. But wherever you fall on the spectrum, you have felt a bit of exile. Back in the day, it was a badge of social pride to be a Christian. You could not get a job if you answered the wrong question about your faith. But now, you would prefer your coworkers not know that you're a Christian. In fact, I'm embarrassed to say this, but the other night we were having a meeting in an, uh, uh, at a co-working space, an office space, and someone said, hey, Kevin, will you open us up in prayer? And my initial reaction is, oh, but there's other people around. I don't want them to think that, I shouldn't have admitted that, I don't want them to think I'm one of them, right? One of those crazies. <laughs> primarily because we don't, this is what I said in my notes, primarily because we don't want to be identified as one of those people. And there are shifts that are taking place. This is why, this is why some people, this is why your Uncle Ned is flipping out over people saying happy holidays, right? Because he feels rightly that there is something that is changing. There's something shifting. Things aren't what they used to be. There was a day when the Christian narrative and values were the dominant story of our country, at least in spoken word even if not in actions. Everyone might not believe, but everyone kind of had a similar shared story. I first experienced that this was shifting when we planted the church and the local NPR station did a story on this cross-country trip that my wife and I took. And this young 20-something-year-old reporter came and interviewed us and she said, why the name The Table? And so I explained, well, there's really three reasons we called ourselves The Table. The first is because um, we like to gather around dining room tables and, and eat food together because we believe that there's something powerful that happens when you share a meal with someone else. The second reason is because is we believe God has called us to provide food to those people in our city who don't have a meal. And the third reason, of course, is because of God's communion table. And she looked at me and she was like, what? I said, like, you know, communion the Eucharist, thinking maybe she had grown up Catholic, the Eucharist, still a blank stare. The Lord's Supper, maybe she grew up Baptist, right? The Lord's Supper, still a blank stare. And finally she said, can you explain this to me like I'm a three-year-old? I have no idea what, you, what you're talking about, right? There's been a shift. And scholars are increasingly making the case. It's going to get just a bit wonky for like the next five minutes. So if you want to get coffee, if you're like, I did not sign up for this. Scholars are increasingly making the case that there's been a major shift in our culture. That we are moving into what is... Yeah, I don't know if that's true. Have you been watching the news? Charles Taylor, who's a Canadian moral philosopher, says this. He says, Taylor says that we are, been, we are living in a secular age. Now, as I said, some of you are saying, look, I think Christians are still doing pretty well, but this is less about identification and more about worldview. And it's often hard to realize how we've been impacted and how we've been impacted until we name it. 
Taylor says that, he talks about secularization this way in a, in a great little book, it's only 970 pages long, called The Secular Age. He says, we have moved into, at a popular level, and, and this book is not, um, it's not prescriptive, it's descriptive. So this is just a philosopher trying to say where we are and like look at all of history, at least the past thousand years and where we are in that moment. He says, we have moved into, at a popular level, something called the age of authenticity. And this is what, this is part of the challenge that you feel when you try to explain to your friends why it is that you follow Jesus. Some of you, you probably wouldn't use this language, but some of you might try to tell your friends something like, Jesus is Lord of my life. Like, that's why I live the way that I live, and they might look at you with a blank stare. It just doesn't make sense. And I want to take a moment just to kind of unpack this word Lord, because we often think that it's Jesus' name, Jesus Lord, right? It's like his last name. Or a function. It's a person who has authority or control or power over others. Think of Downton Abbey or something like that, you know, the Lord's. And for us, we say that Jesus is Lord, Jesus is King, Jesus is our president, Jesus is our CEO, right? whatever the common vernacular might be. But for everyone else, or for a good number of other people, the answer is not that Jesus is Lord, the answer is that authenticity is Lord. Now, this is where it gets really dense, and I'm going to, I almost didn't put this quote in, but, but I but I just wanted you to think I was smart, so I decided to add it anyway. Um, it says this. It says, Taylor, this is again returning to Charles Taylor in a secular age. He said, I mean the understanding of life, when he speaks of a secular age, or the age of authenticity. He said, I mean of an understanding of life which emerges with a romantic expressivism of the late 18th century, that each one of us has his or her own way of realizing our humanity, and that's important to find and live out one's um, own as against one's own humanity or one's own self as against surrendering to a conformity with a model that is imposed on us from outside by society or previous generation or religion or politics. In common vernacular, you do you. Right? That's kind of what they're trying to say. Don't let anyone else try to shape or mold who you are. And we live in a culture that is defined at a popular level. Again, we're creating straw people, straw men to some extent. That is defined at a popular level of freedom from everything. And there's this tectonic shift in understanding about what the good life is. Back in the day, back in the day, um, the, uh, the good old days, right, the time of Aristotle and the Greeks, there was this concept of virtues. Some of you may have studied virtue ethics. And the concept of the virtues was that there were goals of life that you, in, that you conformed your internal desires to some external set of values. So for Aristotle, there was the, uh, the cardinalist. Uh, it'll get a little more, in, maybe a little more interesting in a few minutes. We're going to look at Daniel in a minute. Um, but Aristotle had these cardinal virtues. And they were things like, um, they were things like courage and moderation and justice. And the goal of life, the goal of life was to conform your internal desires to an external set of virtues, to an external set of virtues. So you're not naturally courageous, right? You don't, you're not born courageous, but you participate in practices that shape and mold you into being a particular type of person. 
So right, this is why the Christian tradition, this is the, the, the equivalent would be, and, and I think um, the Apostle Paul is influenced by, by this idea, the, the Christian tradition would, tradition would talk about the fruits of the Spirit. And essentially, as you participate in the practices of the church, the Spirit will begin to shape and to mold you to look like love and joy and peace and kindness and self-control. We don't want anyone putting anything on us. We want to find our own path. And Taylor would say that the goal of human life is, not an, is now not an inward conformity to an external norms. It's rejecting external norms and then using culture as a blank canvas in which to express yourselves. Does anyone, I mean, do you, kind of, does it, you ever see this kind of lived out? We are free from any restraints, which means nobody in our culture or government or anyone else has a right to tell us how to live, including religion. We have made a move from authority to authenticity. We are free from previous generations' imposed values. We are free from their authority. And if I were to be honest, there is a lot to be celebrated about this. Because there were a lot of people who were held back in a previous age. People say, I want to return to the good old days. And I'm like, I don't know that you really do. Right? Because people were held back in a previous age by religion and customs and all these things. And so whether you, because of race or gender or sexual orientation, people are now beginning to come out of the shadows and say, like, I, like people, they're beginning to come out of the shadows. But along with this, along with what's happening... There's also a complete disconnect from the past, from tradition, from authority, from things that shape and mold us and form us into something else. There's no wisdom that we can gain from previous generations because we are writing on a blank canvas. And not to mention, with some good reason, we see previous generations as nothing more than unenlightened oppressors. Some of you who study academically love to throw around the word colonialism, right? And we can talk about the impact of, you know, colonialism on culture and all these different things. And, and you're right. But the problem is that we have so freed ourselves from authority and tradition that we have nothing that molds us. You're not the boss of me. I see this all the time. Like, one of the things, one of the reasons that you love, like our church, or a lot of you like our church, is that we have a very flat leadership structure. Like, we allow people to exercise the gifts that God has given them. When it comes to community groups, we have something we call the free market system, which that means, like, look, if you've got an idea that you want to lead a group around, you go for it. Right? Hey, Pastor Kevin, I think we need to do X. I'm like, that sounds like a brilliant idea. How can I help you carry that out? And often they kind of, their face drops like, no, that was an idea for you to do. I, I don't want to do it. But one of the reasons you love our church is because of this flat leadership structure. But the moment anyone starts to exercise authority, people begin to wig out. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't know what I think about this. Now, maybe none of this rings true for you, but it does for me. I'm an entrepreneur at heart. I started a church because I did not want any other like some outside force telling me how to do church. And it's a compelling narrative that's constantly reinforced. But the problem is, is that this worldview makes the gospel foolishness. 
Because if the goal is to throw off any sort of authority and be your authentic self, the concept of self-denial or taking up one's cross and following Jesus or conforming your mind to the mind of God seems like insanity. It seems like foolishness. And so for a whole host of reasons, it's not too far a fetch to say that as followers of Jesus in a secular city like D.C., we are exiles. I had a young, a young man who attends the downtown uh, parish come to me last Sunday, and I asked him how his job was going. And he said, I'm not sure it's possible to be a Christian and to run a company in our day and age. That's an interesting question. Can we be a Christian and be a politician or an executive? And so the, the thing that we struggle with is how do we live in a dominant culture that lives one way when we want to be formed by, by the person of Christ? We want to be formed by the gospel and by scripture. And, and one of the things that actually bothers me, not about you, this bothers me about me, is that I often stop feeling the tension, right? I become such a good member of DC society that it doesn't feel weird to me anymore. It doesn't feel weird to me to go out and spend a ridiculous amount of money on a meal and a bottle of wine, money I could have used to help somebody else, but I'm spending like dropping 120 bucks for two people to have a nice dinner, and it's just like, that's normal. Now, not that that's not a Christian thing, but it's an example of the way that we become so shaped and numbed by our culture, the culture we live in, that it doesn't even begin to feel weird to us. And so some of you are like, I don't know what he's talking about. This, does not, this feels like a very good Christian culture to me because it matches my values. And so as we're rewriting the rules and as we're throwing off everything we've ever known, there are a couple responses that people tend to embody. The first is they freak out. If you want to like understand the election, right? we can talk politics later, but you want to understand the election a bit, what happened there, there's a bit of freaking out that's going on. And people, when they freak out, tend to respond in a couple of different ways. Right? It's fight or flight. So in the one way, and this is like the tradition that I was most uh, acquainted with uh, back in the day, was is, is, is you, you, you control or you dominate culture. You're probably too young, most of you, but there was a thing back in the day known as the, the religious right or the moral majority or the Christian coalition. I literally had my, I was a card-carrying member of the Christian coalition. And the idea with the Christian coalition was that society, or the whole moral majority, is that society has gone off the rails. And they weren't wrong. Rails, like, we have begun to live in a way that we don't recognize anymore. Now, the things they're concerned about, I would be less concerned about. But anyway, um, and so what do we need to do? We need to dominate and control the culture. We need to win back. We, you hear this language. We've got to win back the country for Christ. So fight. The other option is Flight is to separate. So you have Christians all over the blogosphere who are talking about something now known as the Benedict option. It is this option that you are like withdrawing from society, you kind of cloister down, hunker down, and you live your life. This is like, 
this would be early fundamentalists did this. So they created the reason that you have Bible colleges and that you have Christian radio stations and Christian day schools and all this like Christian publishing companies. The reason you have that entire industry is because there was a day back in the 1920s in particular when, when culture seemed to be moving away from what they saw as Christian values and they said, you know what, we're just going to create our own subculture. This is why some of you in high school had shirts that said AF on them. Doesn't mean what it does today. And, and um, hey, it had the AF on them. And for some people in your high school, it meant Abercrombie and Fitch. So you kind of looked like you belonged. But underneath yours, it said accepted and forgiven, right? And we, we created our own subculture. So you, you pull yourself away. Like the historic model of this would be the Anabaptist tradition. The Anabaptist tradition would kind of, it would have farms and all these different things and would have their own culture. So that's the one, right? Your, your, your pullback, don't embrace or syncretism. You know what? Culture seems great to me. And this is what I think, if there was like a besetting sin of our congregation, it is less, we are less the hunker down folk and we are more the full bone embrace folk. And we fully embrace the changing culture and its values of authenticity and freedom without examining it in light of the gospel. And what ends up happening is we sprinkle a little Jesus language, a little Christian language, a little spiritual language in with the language of the culture. I hear this all the time. I was listening to a Christian podcast the other day, and, and the guy who was doing the podcast was like reading scripture, and then he said this. He's like, you just need to be your true self. And I remember thinking... I just read about that in the age of, this quote, an age of authenticity. And the problem with this language is that it often encourages the worst parts of us. My true self, listen, my true self, who I am by nature, is a challenger who often looks like a bully. And this is like, just being very frank with you, like in my life, you don't plant a church, you don't start something new, shake things up if you're not just a bit of a challenger works really well in some settings. It helps start churches and do other things. Go back and read about any of the people who are famous throughout church history. They all were a bit of challengers, but they also had a bit of a dark side. But it also makes me, every day, it is a challenge for me to be a good husband. Because I'm always saying, like, is the person I am, do I look more like Jesus or do I look more like that challenger, that bully, that person that I am? This is something I try to work on every day as a pastor and a father and a boss. And the call of the gospel is not for you to be your true self, but the call of the gospel is to look like Jesus. It is to look like someone who's shaped by the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, kindness, self-control. Now, we can get back to the whole idea that we are all made in the image of God, and it is the recovery of the image of God, right, and we are to look like love and all that. But I think we need to at least name this idea because I think so many of us are just kind of leaning into our true self and not acknowledging the the ways in which our true self is, needs to be perfected to look like Jesus. And when you're immersed in a city like D.C. and you don't, you don't feel the tension, when you don't feel the tension, when the gospel isn't tugging at your heart, there's a problem. So today, I want to introduce a sub-series called The Creative Minority where we explore what it means to live as exiles in a strange land through the lens of Daniel. And like I said, 
Much of the Bible is written and compiled against the backdrop of being aliens in a strange land, whether it's captivity in Egypt or the Babylonian exile or the early Christians living in the Roman Empire. More often than not, the Bible is written to and by a powerless people who are living in a culture that is not their own. Daniel, the book of Daniel, opens with these words. Daniel chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. The reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Maybe I could read that right. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Just a side note about, this is totally not about the sermon, but I can't read Nebuchadnezzar without remembering this little side note. My wife, Charla, who some of you got to hear preach a couple weeks ago, she has a dark side, as she acknowledged in her sermon. And... Um, she really wanted, asked me early on if we could name our children after, like, dictators in the Bible. So Nebuchadnezzar, right? Nebi for short. Anyway, um, <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the de Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands, along with some of the articles from the temple. And these he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylon. And put, in the treasure, and put in the treasure house of his God. So he takes the treasures of the temple of Israel and takes them to the temples of Babylon. And then the king ordered Asphenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defects, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. He was to make them be good Babylonian citizens. And Babylon was doing, uh, I mean, kind of basic poli-sci. There's a couple of different ways if you ever want to um, build an empire, you can take notes. There's a couple ways to do it. The one is brute force, right? Scorched earth policy, you kill everyone. Problem is then there's no one to like farm the lands and run the factories or whatever it is you do in your empire. And so the other way is a charm offensive, right? You take the citizens of the land that you are capturing and you essentially brainwash them. You win over the hearts and minds of the cultural elite. At least this was the Babylonian style. You win over the hearts and minds of the cultural elite, the best and the brightest, and then the hope is that it'll trickle down. Now, this is not too dissimilar to our own world. The book of Daniel is written during exile by someone who wants to be sure that the people of God do not lose their distinctiveness. Daniel recognizes is that those who are carted off to exile weren't careful. At some point, listen, Daniel realized that at some point their children would cease to be the people of God living in exile and would instead be... I think way too many Americans, way too many of us are Americans who occasionally go to church rather than Christians who live in America. But today I want to posit that there is a better way to live than fear, right, flight, or full-bone embrace of the culture's dominant values. And I think the book of Daniel is a good roadmap for our journey. The author understands cultural disorientation. He went from living in Jerusalem and observing temple worship and this land that had been promised to them and now was in this foreign land where they were being educated and brainwashed by the Babylonian Empire. 
They were steeped for years in the stories and the literature and the language of Babylon, right? This is why Genesis exists. You should know this, right? We talked about this a while back, but Genesis exists because Babylon had their own narrative about why humans existed. And Genesis is compiled to say, no, you were made in the image of God. The Babylonian story of creation is a lie. And they found a way in a culture that was opposed to their way of life, not only to live, but to thrive as the people of God. Their identity and their posture wasn't fear or syncretism, and it wasn't control. Instead, their approach was to become a creative minority. John Tyson um, has a, a great little book called A Creative Minority, and he defines it this way. A creative minority is a, is a Christian community. It, it doesn't have to be, but um, for our case it is, a Christian, minor, a Christian community in a web of stubbornly loyal relationships who live in a challenging and complex cultural situation who are committed to practicing the way of Jesus and seeking the renewal of all things. Now, the reason I said it doesn't have to be Christian is because the term um, creative minority actually comes from the chief rabbi, um, uh, Jonathan Sachs, who says, um, to become a creative minority is not easy. Um, because it involves maintaining strong links with the outside world while staying true to your faith. Seeking not merely to keep the sacred flame burning, but also to transform the larger society of which you are part. This is demanding and a risk-laden choice. It means we live in a tension, the tension between faithfulness and the tension between influence. I have, I've had multiple times people come and talk to me about what they do in D.C. and wondering if maybe they should bail from their job. And more often than not, I say, the worst thing you could do is to walk away from where you are because you are called to be a faithful presence where God has planted you. Now, there are moments when you are at, and then, but I followed it up with, but you have to also be willing to walk away from everything if a moment comes where it will cross your convictions. Right? But it doesn't mean just because it gets messy and muddy, you need to bail. It means we live in the tension between faithfulness and influence. And the church seems to be always caught between the options of embrace and syncretism or separatism and domination. Embrace says we're only living for what's presently available and accessible. Live and let live. Separation says that we withdraw from culture and we just wait till the sky opens and we can be carted off to a better place. And domination says you try to force other people to look like other people to live like you want them to live. But creative minority offers us another choice. It calls us to live fully present here and now while we long for God's future kingdom. This is the tension of all of Scripture, right? It is the already but not yet. God's future kingdom has begun to break into the present. We see slivers and glimpses of what is possible but we still live in a broken world. And this is the tension we see all throughout the book of Daniel. And I think that we can actually look more like Jesus, not when we withdraw or embrace or dominate, but instead when we engage as a creative minority or as another way of saying it, as a faithful presence. So this means that when you're trying to figure out who you are as a follower of Jesus in a city like D.C., you should feel attention. And like I said, if you don't feel attention, if you don't feel that the, world, the call of Jesus, the way that Jesus has called you to live and the way that the dominant culture is living, if you don't feel that tension, there is a problem. 
We are people who fully live in DC. We, like Daniel, have learned what it means to live in exile as, angel, as strangers in a foreign land. And what we discover, I'm going to end with this, what we discover all throughout church history is that the most beautiful moments, the moments where we most look like Jesus, the moments where we had the most favor, the moment when the church and the, was the moment when the church and the followers of Jesus were on the margins. When the people of God, listen, when the people of God are powerful and secure, we are not at our best. There's something about power and might that makes us lazy. But on the margins, we have nothing to lose. So we give it our all. And what we discover is that in the end, there's something incredibly powerful about living faithfully that has the ability to influence and outlast the most powerful empires in the world. A friend of mine recently was in Rome, and uh, I'm super stoked because I get to go to Rome next month with our family. And, but he said he was in Rome, and he, he visited the, they just recently opened the ruins of Caesar's house or Caesar's palace or wherever it is that he lived. Um, and he said, so he went to a tour, and he was walking among the ruins of Caesar Augustus, arguably one of the most powerful people who's ever walked the face of the earth. And then a while later, he said he goes and visits the prisons where both Peter and the Apostle Paul died. And he said, I remember sitting there thinking, I was just in Caesar's house, and now I'm where Paul wrote some of the prison epistles. And I thought, would they have ever bet that this guy and this prison would have eroded through love the empire of the guy on the hill? And that moment when Paul or Peter are in prison and all seems lost and the power of Rome seems so great, would they have ever imagined that love would have eroded that power? The second example is William Wilberforce, who's become more famous recently because of the, um, the, the movie about uh, Amazing Grace about his life, but also because of all the anti-human trafficking work. But, but Wilberforce... We forget sometimes how against the grain William Wilberforce was going. In his day, Wilberforce lived, he was a contemporary of John Wesley, who's like my theological crush. Um, he lived at the time of John Wesley. In fact, the last letter that John Wesley wrote before he died, he wrote to Wilberforce telling him to continue his fight against slavery in England. But in the day when Wilberforce first fights to outlaw human trafficking in their day, the slave trade, people said you are crazy because the entire economy was wrapped up within it. Like, if you do this, everything falls apart. And it became so incredibly difficult that he had a couple of nervous breakdowns and at times was ready to give up. Everybody hated Wilberforce and his group of friends. But by the end of his life, history was the Clappin sect, that this creative minority, they lived in the tension of their culture and a faithfulness to God. They were able to exert redemptive influence and slavery in their country was halted. The other question that when we talk about this, like what does it mean to be Christians who live in, uh, in the dominant culture, one of the things, at least back when you're in seminary and you're sitting around and you get to talk about hypotheticals is the question always, people always throw up, yeah, but what about Hitler? And I could just imagine what it would have been like to have been at one of Hitler's rallies. 
He was a mesmerizing speaker, and there was an energy in the room. When you write, read historical writings, they talk about the energy of these rallies, but they also felt a bit like a tinderbox. At any moment, someone was going to strike a match, and the whole thing was going to blow. And can you imagine being in the midst of that rally as a young PhD student, as a young nerd, and thinking that all was lost. There is no way that the empire will ever come toppling down. And that PhD student ends up dying as a martyr for his faith. But, but Hitler is now the scourge of history. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer, that tried to resist the power of Hitler continue to shape and to guide how we live today. They were a creative minority, a group of people who were bound together by the gospel who said, even against a power like Hitler, we are going to try to live differently. And of course, one of the ultimate examples of a creative minority is the early church, this group of people, this group of people who were hated by everyone around them because they would not conform because they said, look, in fact, you have all these writings that say they are as nice as they can be. They will share their food with anyone, but not their wives. Um, there's like an actual quote that says that. And, and they said they'll help anyone, but yet they won't like conform. And so you find one of the earliest references to the, the resurrection that we find is this sketch. I think we have it here. So this is found like scribbled. It's about from 200 AD. Um, it's scribbled into the, the side of like a, uh, a wall in Rome. Uh, there's actually a better drawing of it here the next one. See right there, and it's a, it's, a, it's a donkey on a cross. And it, this was graffiti on the streets of the Roman Empire, and it is, essentially what it was saying was worshiping your God who is an ass. This is how Christians were perceived. The cross, we forget this because we wear it around our neck and we drop, dip it in gold but the cross was the ultimate symbol of political failure. You lost. We won. And yet this tiny group of Christians who began as this 120 people in an upper room, within 300 years, has seeped all over and what we discover in the book of Daniel is that Daniel does not embrace the culture full on, but he also isn't an outsider. He finds himself in a position of being faithful to God, but also faithful in his relationships, and he's given favor. And this is why I think it's so important for us as D.C. residents in some really unique spaces to hear this, that Daniel is in many ways, he is a powerful person who is a cultural elite. He's trained, he's given a position of influence, he's speaking truth to power, and, and his life is threatened over and over. And what I want us to kind of hear as we're going forward is that if we are going to live into the calling of being a, a creative minority, this cannot just be a materialistic community that simply gathers together and that the strength of our community keeps us going. The only way we can live this out fully is by the power of the Spirit working in and through us. And this is why this is why no one ever preaches from the book of Daniel because it gets really weird. 
Because half of the book of Daniel is about dreams and revelations. It's about intercessory prayer. It's about angels showing up. Because listen, the more that we press in and completely put our trust in God, the more dependent we have to be on God showing up. Because without God at his back, Daniel is a goner. And so as we explore Daniel, I hope we learn what it looks like to live as a creative minority, as a committed community that practices the way of Jesus through the power of the Spirit, and that we will see something beautiful birthed in our community. Because in times of great despair, when people think that the sky is falling in and that there is no hope for the future, followers of Jesus to show that there is another way. There is a way of love and joy and peace and kindness and self-control. May God show us how to live another way. Let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you for Daniel. I thank you for his willingness to to write down his experiences. I pray that you would just help these ancient texts to speak to us over the next few weeks as we explore what it means to be what it means to be in exile in the city where we live, in the country where we live, what it means to be the people of God when it seems so disorienting. And I pray that through our life together and through the power of your spirit working in us, that the world may see that there is a better, more truer, more beautiful way to live. In Jesus' name, amen.